0: I feel that most people that are at risk go unaware that they are at risk, and they don't know that there are things that they can do now that might impact their cognitive movement outcomes later in life. And that's really, really the message I want to get out to everyone who's listening.
1: Hi, and welcome to the All Too Well podcast. I'm your host, Erica Huss. I'm an entrepreneur, a wellness expert, your wellness whisperer, and I'm here to deliver information, tips, and resources to make your journey towards better health, your highway to well, if you will, just a little bit easier. Today is certainly no exception. I had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Kellyanne Neotis. She is a, she's the first fellowship-trained preventative neurologist specializing in risk reduction strategies for neurodegenerative disorders. And if those words don't make sense to you, preventative neurologist in particular, that is because unfortunately, at this time, there is no actually officially recognized field of preventative neurology. And the reason I say it's unfortunate is because as we are seeing the increase in incidence of neurological diseases and disorders like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Lewy body dementia is just absolutely on the rise and showing no signs of slowing down. And uh, unfortunately, at this time, there is no cure for any of these types of conditions. All we can do is become a bit more aware and educate ourselves in order to understand how to look for early signs and stave off or at least postpone the onset of these types of conditions. And this conversation really hit pretty close to home for me on a personal note. Uh, You'll hear more about it in the intro when I connect with Dr. Neotis, but basically it was only because my husband actually heard her speaking on a specific Behavioral disorder in sleep, that uh, we became aware that this is something that actually might be a huge risk factor for him himself. And at this moment, uh, this is months later. We still don't have answers. We still don't have a diagnosis. But it's kind of one of those things that you know, once <laughs> once it's once it's out there, you can't really put that toothpaste back in the tube, so they say. And it's scary because, again, there's no cure for diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And once you are diagnosed with something that suggests that there is a 90% likelihood that you will develop this, what do you do with that information? The answer is really you just have to arm yourself with as much resource and education and 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 information as possible. So, you know, maybe there's a chance to participate in a clinical trial. Maybe you become one of the earliest candidates for receiving treatment and experimental uh, options, drugs, treatments, etc. Again, there's really only information and and knowledge that that you can use to your advantage here. So without further delay, I really encourage you to take special note and pay attention to this episode because you might think that this is something that we don't have to talk about until we're getting on in our years. But the reality is the more you're aware now and the more you can do to look out for early signs and symptoms, the better off you can be. So thanks as always for listening. And here is Dr. Kellyanne Neotis. Officially welcome to Dr. Kellyanne Neotis. Hi, thank you so much for having me thank you for joining me. I'm super, super, super excited to share this conversation. I think the work that you're doing is just so incredibly important. And unfortunately, it's unique in that it's not as widespread as it should be. We'll get into all that. But for the broad strokes, you are a fellowship trained, the first fellowship trained preventative neurologist that is preventative neurology, which is not something that people are super familiar with. Um, And you currently are leading the neurology program with Dr. Or Peter Atia's practice—that's all still correct and up to date—is that right?
0: That's correct, and I also um, am a brain health researcher, so I do a lot of research through the Institute of Neurodegenerative Diseases in Florida. We uh, research personalized or individualized approaches to reducing Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Lewy body. And we do genetics work, work with biomarkers, all fun things that maybe we'll get to talk about on this podcast.
1: For sure, we will. Um, And I do want to disclose, just because I think it's interesting and and relevant, that the reason, not the reason, but the way that you and I connected in the first place was a little bit by chance. But um, my husband actually heard you way back in in the uh, early part of this year Uh, talking about a very specific behavior that has been uh, um, a very high indicator of potentially uh, leading to Parkinson's. It's a sleep behavior. We'll get into all of that. It's something that he definitely exhibits. We are in the process now of actually getting some proper testing done. Um, We've been connected with an amazing group of specialists, due in large part to him hearing you coming to me to say hey, is this something that you've noticed that I do? And me saying, yes, it is. And obviously, once you have that information, it's kind of scary because the statistics are not small in terms of the kind of causation and and potential, um, you know, development factors for something like Parkinson's. And after that, we kind of went down the rabbit hole. And here's my personal story, which is that, you know, because of you and because of the work that you're doing, we might have, you know, a much earlier diagnosis. It might not be a diagnosis. We're not at that stage yet. But where we are. So anyway, that's that's kind of what I wanted to lay the groundwork on because you were so kind and generous to take the time to chat with me. So I'm just so appreciative of that.
0: that. That means so much to me. And honestly, it is one of the things that brings me the most joy in what I do. I feel that most people that are at risk go unaware that they are at risk and they don't know that there are things that they can do. Now that might impact their cognitive movement outcomes later in life. And that's really, really the message I want to get out to everyone who's listening. These diseases can start decades before the first obvious symptom starts, often in someone's 30s or 40s. So it's now early in life the time to do something about it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so important, especially because those of us in 30s, 40s, and even 50s are not really thinking about these types of neurodegenerative issues. We assume that dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's, these are things that, you know, quote-unquote old people deal with. And the fact is, just to your point, symptoms can present so much earlier, even in very, very healthy people. I mean, I think that was the thing that kind of threw us, again, on a personal level was my husband is like, he's 52 years old, but he's so incredibly active, so fit, careful about his diet. And he takes, you know, he's, he's doing so many already like protocols to be mindful about, you know, sleep hygiene and all these things. So for it to somehow also still be, you know, a potential option here is really just indicative to people that you can't really pay close enough attention, you have to you have to just empower and, and arm yourself with as much information as possible. So that's a big yes. part of why we're here. Yeah.
0: it's an unfortunate situation that we're in as a society because it's not just people that are you know walking around with these risk factors for disease and not knowing that they have them, but our medical system isn't really set up to do anything or treat these diseases earlier than when the symptoms first start. So it's only normal that people think of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's as diseases of the old, but in fact, they're
1: really not. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. So I know statistically you have some kind of astounding numbers in terms of the number of cases um, that exist right now and sort of how they're trending. Can you share a little bit about that with us?
0: Yeah. So talking about Parkinson's disease first, because I think it isn't talked about enough. Parkinson's disease, while is not as common right now as Alzheimer's disease, only affects about a million people worldwide or in the US, sorry. It is the fastest growing neurological disease. So from 1990 to, I think it's 2005, disease incidence doubled And it's expected to double again by 2030. So that is remarkable. And we don't fully understand why the disease Mm -hmm. is growing so rapidly, but it is. Alzheimer's disease is the most common neurodegenerative disease. And I'm sure so many people listening to this podcast are have been unfortunately affected or had someone in their family that was affected by this devastating disease. So it is... Very common, and it is very prevalent, and it is growing rapidly,
1: yeah. Uh, I wonder if, I mean, do you think to to any degree that we're seeing this these these rapid growth statistics because we are starting to look at early detection a little bit more seriously, or are we not even at that stage yet? And it's just actually that much more prevalent than it used to be? I,
0: I think it's just that much more prevalent. Yeah. um. I don't think that we're necessarily diagnosing these diseases any earlier. Most people don't go to a doctor until they until have clear, gone. obvious symptoms. And often people who have symptoms in the beginning are in denial of their symptoms and yeah. it's their family members who drag them to the doctors in the first place.
1: Right. And, you know, if we're talking about kind of tip- typical, sort of what we understand, the conventional wisdom around some of these symptoms we're talking about with Parkinson's, you know, potentially a tremor. And with Alzheimer's, we're talking about just memory uh, sort of issues, right? But the reality is they're actually a kind of a host of other indicators that we might not be paying attention to.
0: That's correct. So Parkinson's, the it's very common for people to have a tremor. The tremor usually happens at rest. It's usually in the hands. They also have muscle stiffness. They can shuffle when they're walking. They can have issues with their blood pressure. Those things are really common. For Alzheimer's disease, it's usually short-term memory loss. Often, long-term memory is preserved. And that's actually why people don't show up to their doctor because they're like, well, I remember all these details from 1930. Like, There's nothing wrong with my memory, but that's a completely different pathway in the brain and is not the same as what Alzheimer's affects
1: well, and also, I mean, I think and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I I think I understand that Alzheimer's is much more prevalent among women and Parkinson's among men. Is that accurate? Yes. So that's exactly right. So right now, the incidence of
0: Parkinson's is two to one, men to women. Mm-hmm. And for Alzheimer's disease right now, Every two out of three cases is a woman.
1: Right. So, in that regard, you know, somebody could certainly argue that women of a certain age, we're talking about perimenopause and menopause, are experiencing brain fog that, I mean, we talk a lot about how there are certain types of conditions that mimic others, right? So Mm -hmm. in this particular case, somebody who's experiencing that type of short-term memory loss, they make a joke and they say, oh, well, you know, it's because I'm going through menopause. Even earlier, sometimes people chalk it up to like baby brain um, or, you know, certainly post-COVID, everybody who has... Had COVID at some point is saying that they've got, you know, this like long COVID symptoms like brain fog, which I mean, all of those things I guess are valid, but that's even more a reason why I guess you, you really want people to pay close attention because yes, it could be those things, but it could also be something more serious if we're talking about short-term memory, for example.
0: Yeah. But I will say that that said true, but a lot of the times people who are complaining of short-term memory loss, it's often due to other factors. Mm -hmm. I I find this really, really common. People will come in and they'll be freaking out about things that they can't remember. And the truth is that if you aren't sleeping well, if you're really distracted, if you're super stressed out, you are never going to store the information you take in day-to-day as a memory. Mm -hmm. So you're never going to be able to retrieve that because it never made it into storage in the first place. You have to actually be aware, process, pay attention to the information in real time. And you can't do that if you're sleep deprived, super stressed, or have a lot of other things going on, which unfortunately most people do nowadays.
1: Right. Most people do. And most people don't actually take it that seriously because they assume that A, everybody's under stress. Everybody's got more on their plate than they ever have before. And B, I think Only in certain circles are we actually just starting to take seriously, like really seriously, how how poor sleep hygiene can really negatively impact your health. And I, I don't think that by any means that that idea and that concept has, has spread yet. I think those of us that are in this wellness conversation on a regular basis are much more aware, but even it's even, I feel like just in the last several years that we're really all as a, as a culture, just starting to understand how deleterious poor sleep can be and something that used to be a badge of honor, you know, I only need like four or five hours a night. Like that's the direct line to, to, to your point and to what this research is indicating, um, how, you know, where we can go with that. So
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that even if you are experiencing, whether we call it short-term memory loss or brain fog from being, quote, stressed or having other external lifestyle factors, COVID, menopause, no matter what the cause is, it, it serves you well to figure that out because I'll give you stress as an example, people often dismiss stress because it's just so vague. And I think people are just kind of tired of talking about stress and we think everyone has stress. Totally true. But based on what we know about stress, women are more susceptible to the harmful effects of stress, what stress does to the mm-hmm. brain. So it is really an important risk factor to get on top of for women. And the issue with stress is it has so many downstream consequences on other factors that can influence your brain health, like you said, sleep, but also insulin sensitivity. So you are at higher risk of things like diabetes. Um, it can affect your reproductive health. So you could have menstrual irregularities and ovarian failure can affect your blood pressure, which also affects your cognitive health. So I think Stress is often dismissed as just a thing of life, but for some people that stress is really, really significant, Mm -hmm. even if they've become accustomed to it every day and aren't even aware of how stressed they are. Right.
1: Which I think, again, is sort of a marker of our culture. Um, Hopefully we're moving somewhat away from that, but not fast enough as far as I'm concerned. Um, can you talk a little bit about because I've seen you know in in a lot of the work that you're doing, a lot of the messaging that you're putting out there, you're focusing on a handful of kind of indicators and and um, other I guess markers that we should be paying attention to earlier. So that's things like cholesterol, uh, mercury. Mm-hmm. HRT, I know these are very, very broad and different categories, but I would love if you could share a little bit um, on each of those and how they impact um, these, the potential for developing these diseases.
0: Yeah. So I'll just take a step back from it because yeah. everyone is different. And one of the reasons that I think we have as a medical community been so slow at finding treatment for these diseases is because they are so heterogeneous. The things that drive the disease in one person may be very different than the things that are driving that same disease in another person. And that is really difficult to comprehend. And it's even more difficult to find a treatment for if the cause can be different person to person. So what I find as most helpful is doing a really detailed family history, really understanding what diseases run in your family and getting granular about them. Cholesterol issues, mental health issues, autoimmune issues, because those can all suggest different pathways to a neurodegenerative disease. So often that's the first thing that I tell patients or do take a really, really detailed history. And then the next thing that I think is really important and is often dismissed is doing some sort of genetic testing. And when we talk about genetic testing, it is so broad. You can test for a lot of different genes and it scares people. So they don't like to do it because they say, well, I have this gene. I don't want to burden myself with this knowledge. I don't want to know about it. I can't do anything about it. But for most genes, that's not the case. When we think about Alzheimer's disease, for example, there's about 5% of cases that are due to genes that are Deterministic, meaning you get this gene, you will get the disease. But the majority of cases are not due to one of these genes. 60% of those cases are due to a gene called APOE4. ApoE4 stands for apolipoprotein E4, and this is a cholesterol gene. It affects cholesterol metabolism and transport throughout the body, but especially in the brain. People who have an ApoE4 gene have altered cholesterol transport through different brain cells, and cholesterol is key for normal brain functioning. You need cholesterol to help your brain cells stay healthy, help them repair, help them signal between or communicate with each other. So cholesterol is extremely important. Everyone thinks it's a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. So this gene is important to know if you have, because it doesn't only impact your risk of developing a disease like Alzheimer's or Lewy body dementia. It also puts you at a higher risk of having high cholesterol peripherally. And high cholesterol in itself is a modifiable risk factor for dementia. Mm -hmm. So in people who have this APOE4 gene, we should really, really be on top of their cholesterol. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Can you, um, you mentioned also Lewy body dementia in that last example, and that's one thing that we haven't touched on yet. Can you give like kind of a quick rundown of what that is?
0: Yeah. So it can be very difficult because everyone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease to really understand what Lewy body dementia is, but it it is technically a different disease than Alzheimer's. I'll give you my point on what my impression of how it fits into the spectrum is, but symptoms of Lewy body often are memory issues, usually visual spatial issues, like issues with understanding spatial relationships between objects. objects, issues with depth perception. They also have movement problems like you can see in Parkinson's, slow movements, tremor, shuffling, muscle stiffness, not moving as easily. And frequently they have hallucinations. Um, Mm. These hallucinations are often of visual things, usually little people, sometimes animals. The disease can often be more aggressive than Alzheimer's disease. But Mm. I will say that we as neurologists separate Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease into their own buckets. And there are even specialists that are movement specialists that take care of Parkinson's and Lewy body and cognitive neurologists that focus on things like Alzheimer's disease And that might be a fault of the medical system because there is so much overlap between Mm -hmm. these diseases in terms of the symptoms that we see, in terms of the pathology that we find when we autopsy their brains and look Mm -hmm. at it under a microscope um, and in terms of what's driving them. So Mm -hmm. separating them isn't so great. Um, When we think about Lewy body, we're thinking about I guess, let me rewind. So there are these abnormal proteins that are associated with neurodegenerative diseases. Um, When we think about Alzheimer's, we think about amyloid proteins and tau proteins. And we think about Parkinson's, we think about a protein called alpha-synuclein. Lewy body, interestingly, has both amyloid and alpha-synuclein. So Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as kind of an (laughs) in-between these diseases. Mm-hmm. And the risk factors that drive them are very in between these two diseases. So right. I know it's distinct, but it might ultimately end up not being a distinct disease at all.
1: Right. Right. Well, again, just one more thing to be aware of, I suppose. And can you talk a little bit about, um, oh, we touched on it earlier briefly, but I know that there's been a lot of like recent conversation and stuff. I mean, in general, the whole conversation around hormone replacement therapy in women of menopausal age is getting a lot of attention now because I think Mm -hmm. we're just recently kind of learning and refuting some studies that were made a little too, kind of spread too far and wide about 20, 30 years ago um, that are all kind of being recanted now. But I know that there's still like a great deal of concern among women of menopausal age that they want to avoid estrogen therapy because of the links to potentially the links to breast cancer, but now there's also the separate conversation around the links to Alzheimer's. So I know you've done a bit of, of uh work trying, you know, trying to address this as well. Can you can you share a little bit of that?
0: Yeah, this is a really complicated topic and it's complicated because the annoying answer is that we don't have enough really high quality studies in this area to give any definitive recommendations so we're all translating the meaning behind different studies and trying to come up with conclusions what i can tell you what i personally think based on the literature and we can you know dissect the more Recent study, which was published not so long ago, showing that HRT is associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's or increased risk of dementia. What's really tricky is that it is a very individual thing. <laughs> not everyone should be on HRT. Mm-hmm. Not everyone should be on it forever. And Mm -hmm. maybe there's a right time and the right person to start it. So looking at the data in people who carry this ApoE4 gene, for example, HRT, when given during the perimenopause period, which is the period where hormones start to change. So it's about five to seven years before full cessation of menstrual periods up to five years after it seems mm-hmm. actually have better cognitive outcomes. And the thought behind that is that there are estrogen receptors in the brain. When women go through menopause, that drastic drop-off of estrogen and reproductive hormones seems to be particularly damaging to women who have other risk factors like ApoE4. hmm So these women might be ones that would benefit from HRT. It's such an individualized discussion though, and you have to think about the right dose and the right person and the right time. And of course, weigh other risks that are associated with it.
1: Right. Well, and again, I mean, all the more reason to pay attention to whether you are in a risk factor group or not, and then seek out the services of someone in your field, um, I mean, in general, is is the field of preventative neurology something that is really, is it for everyone or is it really specifically for people who have risks? Like, should we all be going to someone like you? Obviously, we can't all see you, but, um, or is it really like we have to kind of do our own due diligence first and then decide if we actually have enough risk factors to deem it necessary?
0: So there's no field of preventive neurology. Well, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was so wishful thinking. I, I was manifesting it, but yeah. I
0: would I would love to create a field of preventive neurology because there really aren't enough neurologists that are doing what I do. Only a handful of us and there really are no training programs to teach trainees, neurology trainees how to take care of these people. My Fellowship was unfortunately a one and done. I was super interested in it. We created this fellowship so I can do it with an amazing mentor that I've had since I was a medical student, Richard Isaacson. And there aren't any other fellows that have ever done it before. So... While I would love to say that, you know, everyone should see a preventive neurologist because everyone wants to optimize their brain health, everyone wants to maintain their cognitive function throughout their life. Like living to 90 does you no good if you don't have your marbles anymore. So <laughs> I would love everyone to see a preventive neurologist. But right now, without a supply, the onus is unfortunately on everyone who's listening to understand what their own risk factors are. And I think you're a really amazing example of that as someone who has been so educated yourself and so proactive, you really have to advocate for yourself or for your loved ones if you know that they have certain risk factors.
1: Yeah. Well, and you said that to me earlier too, when we spoke that the role of caregiver actually, I mean, caregiver in this sense, you know, spouse and partner versus, you know, literally taking care of somebody who can't care for themselves, but it's kind of overlooked, right? Because oftentimes, especially in this particular example, which I would love for you to kind of expand on a little bit, but with these like sleep behaviors, oftentimes it is the partner Or the caregiver or the person who just happens to be observing what the patient themselves might not necessarily see, whether it's something visual that you can see when someone's moving about the room or whether it's like this where it's actually something that they're sleeping so they really have no idea that they do it. So again, I guess chalk it up to things that we want to put on our vision board for the medical field is <laughs> preventative yeah. neurology training programs and also a little bit more attention paid to, you know, this kind of uh, interpersonal dynamic between people just between between partners, friends, whoever it is, but kind of everybody keeping everybody else a little bit in check, obviously without being an alarmist, but Anyway, so can you let's can we talk a little bit about this this um this question around RBD because that's yes. kind of how we came together in the first place.
0: Yes. Um and I just want to say that knowledge is definitely power just to put a little bow on that statement. Yeah. Really right now it's on you to learn about this and to take your own health into your hands. Um so RBD this is REM B, sleep behavior disorder. So what is REM sleep? Let's start there first. Mm -hmm. There are different sleep stages and each sleep stage does something very important for your brain. REM sleep is the sleep where you dream. And during REM sleep, you take all of the things that you learn throughout the day and store them into memories. It helps you with emotional processing, um, so, REM sleep is very important. What happens to people who have REM sleep behavior disorder is that normally you should not have any muscle activity during REM sleep. You should be paralyzed. People who have REM sleep behavior disorder do not have muscle paralysis during REM sleep. So, they're dreaming and I'm sure people have experienced very vivid dreams, very lifelike dreams. Even though you feel like it's very real, you're usually just laying there sleeping and not moving. People with REM sleep behavior will reenact these dreams. They can be very violent. They can throw themselves off of the bed even. They can talk. They can scream. They can shout. They can kick or punch their bed partners. So it is a much more dramatic Reenactment. Um, simple sleep talking doesn't really count. It's really that thrashing and acting out mm-hmm. of dreams. And what a lot of people don't realize about this behavior is that it has, it's very, very strongly linked to developing one of these alpha synuclein pathologies, which include Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia.
1: So the statistic that we heard uh, was that it was present, that particular disorder was present in like 90% of cases, right? Yeah. Which is different than saying you have a 90% chance of developing. It's very different. Very different.
0: It's a positive predictive value. So it is highly predictive, but the issue with it is that the lead time is really uncertain. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is, say you were having REM sleep behavior disorder and it started a year ago. Will you, if you ever will develop Parkinson's, when will it happen? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. We actually don't really know what that length of time looks like. So it's a really, really tricky thing. And, I want to also just point out that there are other reasons for REM sleep behavior disorder, Mm -hmm. and certain medications are a common culprit of it.
1: Mm -hmm. And is there a difference between, again, you know, asking for a friend, but is there a difference (laughs) between? what you would consider like a mild case of it, like does the severity Mm -hmm. of it have any indication um, or any stronger link? Because, you know, just for example here, this is not somebody who is jumping, leaping out of bed, anything like that. It's generally that he's dreaming about sports um, and he's like playing tennis or like running. And that's really been the extent of it. I think one time I got like a karate chop between the shoulder blades, but that was like one ever otherwise you know it's something that i think given what we've studied and learned and what you've shared it seems like it's on the mild side but then the question becomes like how relevant is that and you probably don't have real hard data but i have to ask anyway
0: yeah i don't have really hard data but i can tell you what my personal experience and impression is from seeing a lot of people with it it can ebb and flow meaning Symptoms could be present for three days straight and then not happen for months. And that doesn't really mean anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The severity, while I don't know, I, I can't claim that I'm an expert in RBD. I don't know if the severity has any correlation to outcomes. I can say that clinically, I think it does meaning the people who are having very vivid dreams and they're usually not pleasant dreams. They're usually nightmares, very disturbing dreams and are really violently thrashing. Those people seem to not have the best outcomes cognitively, even though we're talking about one of these movement disorders where the primary symptom are things like tremor and muscle stiffness. People who have really profound REM sleep behavior disorder tend to have issues with
1: their cognition. Mm, Okay. That's interesting. Is sleepwalking part of this as well, or that feels like it's a different thing, right? Yeah, that's different.
0: That's called a parasomnia, but it is different and is not included in this. It's not uncommon for kids to have sleepwalking, and it doesn't mean anything for their outcomes later
1: in terms of
0: their brain health.
1: So interesting. So there is that, I'm sure you know this comedian, Mike Barbiglia. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who, I mean, he has a whole, he built his entire comedy shtick around the concept, uh, like his special was called Sleepwalk With Me. And he had this huge, like long, very elaborate bit, you know, it was like hours and hours long and it starts and then it ends with that about his, you know, sleep behaviors. And he calls it Sleepwalk With Me. But for people who don't know and who have heard of him, he actually does have um, RBD and he's now kind of like become, he's sort of aligning himself with like Michael J. Fox's campaign around Parkinson's awareness, um, because he obviously is accepting that he's very likely to develop this if he hasn't already been diagnosed. I don't know for sure, but he would describe, you know, literally like waking up on his lawn after he threw himself out the window, uh, you know, in one of his, like enacting one of his dreams, which to your point about, you know, the violence and the extremity is incredibly disturbing. Yeah.
0: They're violent reenactments. Yeah. They're not usually like happy, I'm running, I'm on my track, I'm running or like right. frolicking. They're usually unpleasant dreams and yeah. they're violent.
1: Well, it's, it's again, something to be, you know, very, very aware of. And especially because oftentimes people don't know that they're doing it because they're asleep, even if they're not in deep sleep, as they should be, or REM sleep. Um, it's kind of, you know, the onus is on anybody who's sharing that space to say, hey, this is something that you might want to check out.
0: Yeah. And what goes along with that could be sleep apnea. So right. sleep apnea has outcomes in terms of your cognitive function. So if you're snoring a lot, it does behoove you to get that investigated because that is totally a modifiable thing. You don't need to drop your oxygen content when you're sleeping. Your brain needs oxygen. You can get it oxygen. So if you have this, it is just worthwhile investigating and correcting it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if we're talking hypothetically, say that you are, say you're my husband or say that you are somebody who is otherwise quite healthy and, you know, super aware of just taking care of themselves in a different way. Like what is, and, and you have a diagnosis. So what is available now? Like where, I mean, because, you know, in this situation, I mean, a lot of what we talked about, like when this first came up was like, well, now you can't kind of put this genie back in the bottle. You already know a little bit, you kind of have to know the whole story. Some people say like, I just wouldn't want to know because there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it doesn't seem that that's entirely true, but what is your position on on this? Yeah. So
0: unlike Alzheimer's disease where 60% of people carry this ApoE gene, Parkinson's and Lewy body, they don't have an equivalent, meaning Not as many people have a clear identifiable gene, but there still are many genes that are involved. And I would definitely recommend figuring that out. There are several different research studies and one through the Michael J. Fox Foundation called the PPMI or the Parkinson's Progression, I don't know, Markers Initiative. We have to look up the exact name, sorry where people who have either a known gene or family history can get genetic testing and that's free. And they'll screen you for all of these genes that put you at a higher risk of things like Parkinson's and Lewy body. And why it's beneficial to know that is because there are certain genes that may be manipulatable by Mm. interventions like non-inflammatory medications like aspirin or Advil, Mm -hmm. um, things like certain B vitamins, certain B12 vitamins specifically called adenosylcobolamine might be beneficial for some people. So there are a lot of different genes and it Matters because the disease is so heterogeneous in order to really attack it, you have to figure that out. But more broadly, the number one thing that you can do to delay disease progression in this particular case is to stay on top of exercise. Mm -hmm.
1: So, exercise, I mean, I think, and in general, you've talked a lot about, you know, there's a number of kind of lifestyle modifications or protocols that you can used to at the very least delay um serious progression so is exercise just kind of across the board is it specifically cardio is it strength is it like something more specific than that um i mean any 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 level of of detail there yeah so a mix
0: is recommended cardio is really important but what i find in my own clinical observation, when we think about the world of Parkinson's, these people tend to do too much cardio, (laughs) almost like they're in a sympathetic fight or flight overdrive. And that I think is dangerous. I don't have a lot of ground to stand on, but when you're constantly in the state of sympathetic overdrive or fight or flight, you're stimulating cortisol and you're tiring out the dopamine production of your brain. Dopamine is a really important neurotransmitter for these diseases. It is a movement neurotransmitter. It's what helps us move, but it also modulates emotions and addiction and reward and a lot of other things. So we know dopamine is really important. If we're burning out our dopamine because we are in sympathetic overdrive, it's probably not a good thing. So it really is. The exercise plan is really based on the individual. Often I also see that they're really under muscled. Hmm. So working on strength and putting on muscle mass is also very important. I try to tone down their cardio and try to get them to do some more zone two work because that can improve mitochondrial efficiency. And the mitochondria are thought to be a huge driver of of disease pathogenesis in this case.
1: Yeah. And just to clarify, because the zone two thing is relatively new for me, but I've just started doing it as well. Like instead of constantly pushing and getting your heart rate up to if you use a heart rate monitor which I think at this point everybody should when they're exercising at least doing cardio um you kind of you calibrate uh your age and your weight and a lot of other factors and it gives you kind of a target heart rate so when you say zone two it's actually like kind of doing a slow bike ride for 45 minutes and only getting up to like whatever, for me, it's like 136 BPMs is like my maximum, um, as opposed to doing like a crazy hit workout where I'm up to like 170, 180 or something like that, which was it great can, news. Cause I really don't like actually, you know, getting myself that exerted all that often. So it can be very,
0: very boring. Um, so a lot of people hate doing it. They don't feel like they're working out, but It's really, really important. Really, really important. The other caveat with zone two is that you have to do it for a long time. It's not a thing where you're like, okay, 20 minutes and I'm out of here. No, it takes a while because what we're, we won't get into the nitty gritty, but it takes a while to meet physiologically the level that you're trying to meet in your blood to be categorized as zone two. And so you need to do it for more than 30 minutes, usually close to an hour.
1: Right. But that's actually, I mean, for me, it is quite boring, but that's like the perfect time that I used to catch up on like trash TV that I would not otherwise allow myself to watch. Cause like most Netflix shows are about 47 to 50 minutes. And so that's like my zone two time. It's kind of a reward and an effort at the same time.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. And some people like to do it while they're like taking calls, because they have a standing desk, or they have a Peloton desk, whatever. You can try to mesh it in with your life in some way, because you're not out of breath.
1: Right, exactly. Um, Another thing that I know you're big on that I love to geek out on is um, you're big on this whole concept of like if you don't use it, you lose it. And you talk specifically about Hand strength, grip strength, which I've heard a little bit about, um, and toe strength, which I have never really heard about. So can you please, please share a bit on those two pieces? Yeah.
0: So let's talk about real estate in the brain. So there is a part of our brains called the motor cortex. And in the motor cortex is perfectly mapped out every part of our body. And every part of our body takes up a different amount of real estate. People go to the gym and they usually work out things like their quads and their biceps and their forearms. Well, newsflash, those things take up almost no real estate in your motor cortex. The things that take up a ton of real estate are actually your hands. If you think about how complex your hands are your jaw, your tongue, huge huge real estate. So, in the brain, I like to say, yes, if you don't use it, you lose it. The brain needs sensory input to stay healthy. It needs fuel full like it needs food and nutrients and oxygen, but it also needs sensory input. This is why hearing loss has been linked to things like Alzheimer's and vision loss can impact Parkinson's and Lewy body. These are why we care about it. The brain needs that input. So, if you aren't working out your hands, if you have weak grip or, or you can't really coordinate your hand movements, meaning there are certain ways that you can't spread your fingers or you can't get your hand to grip in a certain way, it means that you are losing that part of your brain. Mm. So, if you don't start working on it, What's going to happen is that isn't going to be accessible to you anymore. And in order to build movement or motors, or if you really do have to work out these more obscure things that we don't really think about.
1: So that's the hand grip story. And um, wait, just to interrupt really quick yeah. on the hand grip story, um, would you argue that somebody who plays the piano and is like that dexterous might be at a better advantage? Just curious. Yeah,
0: yeah, I would actually argue that. And I've definitely noticed that in musicians when I do my assessments on them they are so coordinated. They're perfectly able to separate their left and right side, which is very difficult for people. And you can try this at home when you're doing something really challenging. With one side, notice what your other side is doing. It's often mimicking the activity of that side because it's strenuous and you're kind of recruiting motor networks from the opposite hemisphere of your brain to help you accomplish that task. You really want to reinforce your motor networks and build up some resilience. So when you're doing easy things like tapping your fingers, you're not really recruiting motor networks. That's different than grip strength, though. That's yeah, yeah, coordination yeah. and dexterity. Yeah. Grip strength is has been tracked with dementia risk. So we know people who have low grip strength, it correlates to low muscle mass, low muscle mass correlates to cognitive dysfunction. So it is important to build up your muscle mass
1: and to build up your grip strength. And so you like to do a hang, like you like to do like a full <laughs> dead hang, right?
0: I am really I, I've trying. I've been starting okay. with
1: my dead hangs.
0: I am really, really weak. <laughs> I've been very, very weak my whole life and I am really, really trying. So my goal by the end of the summer is to do a pull-up and I'm so, so close. So, so close. Yes. But what most people don't realize about pull-ups is that it is, they are like, oh, it's all back, but no, actually it's a lot of hands, a lot of hands. If your hands are weak, you can't do a pull-up. So I'm really, really trying. I'm almost there.
1: (laughs) I'm going to start just with my hangs because I'm hanging for like 30 seconds now, and that doesn't really feel impressive. But there's, I mean, you see how long my arms are and how like I have nothing and I have a long body. So I I got a ways to go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Gotta, gotta really pull with your hands. I know. And I, okay. So
1: that's,
0: yeah. Wait, wait, let me try to find. I have this at my desk. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to see this on the podcast because they're all going to be listening and be like, what is this? So, Fun things to do at your desk at work. You can buy things that are to work on your grip strength. So I have this little squishy egg here and I do cool things where I try to squeeze it between my... Thumb and my index finger and hold it and try to do it between all fingers. You will see how difficult it is to squeeze oh, wow. this thing between your fingers. I need it, that But Fun ways to work on.
1: Hand well, and that's also to your point. Yeah, like something you can do on the phone or whatever. If you're not doing your Zone Two workout, you can at least squeeze something.
0: <laughs> on very endlessly long Zoom meetings, it is yeah. a great stress relief. But also, you're doing something good for you. I your love that. Friend, okay. toast, the toast strength, toast are yeah, toes are different. Um toes are they don't take up as much real estate as your hands. They're not as complex and you can understand they're not as complex in terms of the movements that they can do. But toes are really really important for stability and particularly in parkinson's what you see is that people have very very weak toes and mm. weak toes correlates to fall risks later in mm. life. Mm-hmm. What I often see is something called this dystonic movement of the toes where the big toes will flex up when people walk and your big toe is like a break. So your big toes really need to be able to grip down to stop you from propelling forward. If they're flexing up, you are at a very high risk of falls and that's not good for anything.
1: Mm. So how do you work on toe strength? (laughs) (laughs) lots of
0: fun things really okay Uh, so okay well there are different ways that you can work on toe strength one thing that you can do is just try moving your toes keeping your feet barefoot try lifting all five of your toes try to keep just your big toe lifted while the other four are planted the reverse big toe plants all other fours lift it's really, really hard. It's really hard.
1: hard. I'm trying to do it right now. Can't really, really <laughs>
0: hard. Um, you will see very quickly if you are uncoordinated and weak in your toes, if you can't do those things without mimicking it on the other side.
1: Wow. Okay. That is a good. Yeah, it's kind of like doing kegels with your feet. <laughs> I mean, people have gone to other lengths.
0: I'm one person that I love and who has taught me so much is Beth Lewis. And she uh, has exercises where she will wrap a resistance band underneath the big toe and actually have like the big toe do its own little push-ups. I like that. Once you progress, I mean, basics are basics. You have to be able to move your toes first. Once you get coordinated, you can get fancy by adding things like resistance bands and doing toe push-ups.
1: Toe push-ups. Okay. Something to aspire to. (laughs) Um, Okay. I know we are really, really short on time, but just really quick, I wanted to ask how you feel about supplements, Um, whether like you know the the, the world of adaptogens, Lion's Mane, all of that stuff for, for brain health or other types of supplements? Do you have any favorites and any that you just call bullshit on?
0: Ooh,
1: this is I didn't really mean to put you hard. on
0: the spot. <laughs> um, okay.
1: You can follow up with me and I'll just put it in the show notes if you want some time to think about it.
0: No, no. I mean, I have some supplements that I... I, I would say there is no one blanket supplement that I think everyone should take. I truly don't think that yeah. anyone should say, oh my gosh, this is the best thing for your brain. Take it. No, it really depends on your blood work. It depends on your risk factors. That's why I said, even when we're talking about important blood tests to order, it really, really depends on what we're looking for. Like, what are you at most risk for? So I can give you just some basics, which are really important to make sure that your homocysteine levels are low Mm -hmm. homocysteine is a marker of B vitamin metabolism. People who have certain genetic mutations don't metabolize B vitamins as well. And they need specific forms of B vitamins, like methyl B vitamins. If your homocysteine is high, you should be taking a B vitamin complex. Mm -hmm. I always tell people to make sure that they're eating enough fatty fish. And if you aren't a person that eats enough fatty fish, then it might be a good idea to consider supplementing with a omega that's high in DHA, which is a specific type of omega-3 different from heart-healthy omega, which is EPA. Um, Those are really the big ones. There are Mm -hmm. other things that I think about, but it's really on an individual case-by-case basis. Yeah, fair enough. Just
1: figured I'd ask. Okay. Well, I know we've covered a lot of territory here. Is there anything specifically you feel like we haven't touched on that you think is super important for people to think about?
0: Um, I would just say knowledge is really power. And I know I've said this throughout the podcast, but there aren't enough people, doctors like me doing what I do. And it is my personal mission to try to change that. And I think the way to change that is to Have people like you become aware, have the demand for this type of care become so great that medical systems are forced to offer it and insurance companies are forced to pay for it because right now it's unfortunately only accessible by people who can pay for it and it really shouldn't be. But we're behind in the field of preventive neurology compared to things like preventive cardiology where... It's its own thing. And you can find preventive cardiologists everywhere. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. So empower yourself, take your health seriously, understand your risks and advocate from your doctors to
1: do things that are important for your brain, like APOE testing. Yep. Yeah, totally agree. It's such a, I mean, it's such a wealth of information that I feel like even if, you know, I'm sitting here saying, well, I don't necessarily feel like I fall into these risk factors, but of course I'm going to go back and look at the blood work and look at my tests, but I'm pretty sure my APOE stuff is, is normal. But everybody knows somebody who could benefit from this information, even if it's not you yourself, literally everybody. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is one of those, like, please pass it on type type moments where we just want everybody. This is not specific to men, women, race, you know, age, whatever. This is literally for everybody. So, yes.
0: Thank you for having me and letting me share my message. Oh, my
1: God. It's such a privilege to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time and and best of luck. And, and thank you for everything that you do. And and I can't wait to help kind of just get the word out for you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to All Too Well, guys. And as always, I am accepting stars, reviews, reviews all of the above they don't cost you anything and they mean a lot to me so if you do have time head on over to apple Podcasts and throw me a few stars and uh you know just do a good turn thanks